Glad that that kind of uh, prediction was true. We depend on reliable counsel, guidance, information, especially when it's something future-looking, like the weather, for instance. If we didn't have an accurate forecast, we would be ill-prepared for, uh, for the weather that we encounter. And even things like financial advice. How many of you have a financial advisor that helps you invest your money so that you can be prepared for either present or future retirement? We depend on good, reliable counsel. Imagine if it weren't good counsel. Listen to some of this guidance. In 1876, a Western Union internal memo said, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. Wow. And then, uh, a couple decades later, in 1926, radio pioneer Lee DeForest said, while theoretically and technically television may be feasible, commercially and financially, it's an impossibility. <laughs> Little did he know. Or in 1949, Popular Mechanics wrote, where a calculator on the ENIAC, that was the first programmable digital computer, he said, that is equipped with 18,000 vacuum tubes and weighs 30 tons. He says computers in the future may have only 1,000 vacuum tubes and weigh only 1.5 tons. <laughs> Thank goodness, can you imagine lugging that thing around? So a little more current, uh, 1977, Ken Olson was at that time the president of Digital Equipment Corporation and he said there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Now imagine if you're following that kind of guidance, especially making investment decisions off of it. Bill Gates, listen to what Bill Gates said in 1981. He said, 640K of computer memory ought to be enough for anybody. <laughs> Do you know what? Now a laptop typically has 16 gigabyte. That's 25,000 times more memory than Bill Gates. Said, that ought to be enough for anybody. Bill Gates, you'd think he'd know what he's talking about. Well, if you were relying on that for guidance, like on how to invest your money, imagine you'd be misled. Or what if you were getting guidance that your life depended upon or more importantly yet, that your eternal destiny depended on. We, we rely on good guidance. And we saw last week um, that God alone knows what the future holds. He knows, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago. Dan taught last week. Thank you, Dan. He, he knows the end from the beginning. And in fact, he gives us this wonderful thing of prophecy, history written in advance, and he uses it to validate his word. That's his calling card. He says, this is how you'll know that this is me speaking and not some fake, some phony. And so remember we saw that there were over 300 prophecies, detailed prophecies of the Messiah. And we saw that for just 48 of those to be fulfilled by one person by chance, the odds scientifically verified were one intended 168th power. It's so far beyond impossible that it's ridiculous to even consider. One intended a 50 is impossible, they say. 
That's one in 10 to the 168th, and that's just 48 of the prophecies. And so we saw where um, the, the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus, but they said, but we have, you and I have something even more sure, and that's the word of the prophets, fulfilled prophecy to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So that was last time in chapter one. Now as we move into chapter two, we're going to see that there were also false prophets and we're going to see the damage that they can inflict and the judgment that awaits them. And so the message title this morning is Judgment and Rescue. And it has, it's going to be 2 Peter chapter two, verses one through nine. And there's two simple parts to the outline. First of all, the fakes in verses one through three. And secondly, the fates in verses four through nine. So it's a little longer text. I'm just going to read the first part first, beginning in verse one. We'll read the first three verses and then we'll work our way through that. We're going to spend most of our time in that first section. So when time is going on and you go, Paul's only on verse two, don't panic. (laughs) The, The second section will go much faster. So beginning in verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories that they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So I want to look first at the fakes in these first three verses. So again, chapter one ended with this, where God spoke through the prophets to give us the certainty of his word. But then we get into chapter two and it starts out by saying, but. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, in the Old Testament times, most people did not have access to God. They couldn't go and just talk to him because sin had created distance, a barrier wall, separation between mankind and God. And so God raised up a few men who, under certain circumstances, could approach him and could be an interface between God and man. And these were generally in two categories. The first one was the prophets. And the prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God. They would say, thus saith the Lord. Or in modern language, this is what the Lord says. And they would communicate God's message. We, they were responsible for communicating those prophecies that we talked about, which came from God. These guys were way ahead of their time because they knew how to download information from the cloud, even way back then. (laughs) Then there was a second group known as the priests. And the priests, it was their responsibility to speak to God on behalf of the people. So you have prophets and you have priests. And God took these roles really seriously because this is what... Um, He said in Deuteronomy 18, he said, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. 
But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. That, that's pretty serious. But it was important that there be this this accountability for both the prophets and the people because what could be more wicked than misleading people when it comes to matters of eternity and salvation and God himself? God didn't want to leave any room for miscommunication, for for falsehood. And so Deuteronomy 18 continues in verse 21. It says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. So again, the penalty for that would be death. It's a serious penalty because it was a serious evil crime to say this is what God says but in fact, if it, if it was not. But this didn't stop some people from speaking falsely in the name of God. Look at how verse one starts out. But there were also false prophets among the people. The, the first and primary difference between a true prophet and a false prophet was their source of information. Look back at chapter one, verse 20 in our text. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, meaning no true prophecy, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's that process of inspiration that we talked about, God speaking through human writers, but he was the author. So the, the source of information for a true prophet was God himself. False prophets claimed to have a message from God, but it wasn't. It was false. So there were these false prophets back then, and then verse 1 continues. It says, just as there will be false teachers among you today. Notice the change in language from false prophets to false teachers. What's the difference? Well, with the completion of the Bible, God didn't need to give new revelation. There was no need for new revelation. What was needed was a proclamation of the completed revelation. I know it rhymes. I didn't mean for it to rhyme like that. But that's what it was. And so along with that change in responsibility, there was also a change in title. They went from more from referring to them as prophets to teachers in the New Testament. And even when in the New Testament it talks about the spiritual gift of prophecy, it wasn't talking so much about foretelling, like predictive prophecy. It was talking about forthtelling, proclaiming that which God has already revealed. So that's what a pastor and a teacher does. They proclaim or declare God's completed revelation. So... Looking back, they were referred to as prophets, and now going forward, it's mostly referred to as teachers. And notice it says in verse 1 that these false teachers will be among you. And we saw this before. The focus of this letter is the danger that comes from an inside job. 
See, in 1 Peter, Peter was writing these persecuted Christians. There were outsiders attacking the church, violently persecuting them. But in, in, in his second letter, he said, now watch out, because there's something just as dangerous, and it's going to come from within. It's going to be an inside job. These, these false teachers will be among you. Have you ever bitten into an apple and found a worm inside? Yeah. You know the only thing worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm inside? You know what it is? Half a worm. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Half a worm. Check that out. Whole worm? Half a worm. Whole worm? Half a worm. This is kind of fun. I told you I like this PowerPoint stuff. Finding a half a worm inside. But did you know this? The worm doesn't eat its way into the apple from the outside. The worm begins as eggs that are deposited on the apple bloom by an insect. And as the apple grows, the eggs are already inside and they hatch into a larva. And when they mature into a worm, the worm eats its way out of the apple from the inside out. It begins from within. And so it's a little bit like false teachers. They don't attack the church from the outside. They start on the inside and they chew their way out, wreaking their havoc. So look at uh, how they operate in verse 1. It says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Well, heresies. What is a heresy? A heresy is something that contradicts a core truth of the Christian faith. You might think of heresies like denying the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. Um, those are some of the common heresies that you might hear. Denying that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Teaching that you have to work and earn your salvation. That would be a heresy. So those are what the, we often think of when we think of heresy, but the example given here is one of denying the sovereign lordship of Jesus. In other words, they're unwilling to submit their lives to the rule of Jesus. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, meaning master, and not do what I say? Luke 1 says that I'm sorry, verse one says that they'll do this secretly too. They will secretly entice people to deny the lordship of Jesus. Now, by secret, it doesn't mean they're doing their teaching in secret, but the destructive nature of that teaching is hidden. It's not obvious. See, no teacher stands up, no false teacher stands up and says, now listen up, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely false and it'll lead you straight to hell. Nobody's going to say that. They're going to hide the destructive implications of their teaching. So that's what it means when it says it's done in secret. It also says that the, the judgment will be swift. Their judgment will be swift. That doesn't mean it'll happen right away, necessarily. We see many people living a godless life, and they seem to go on without consequence. Remember in Psalm 73, when Asaph, he said, my feet almost slipped when I saw the, the prosperity of the wicked. 
he saw that going on. He didn't see any punishment coming to them. And it almost caused him to question his faith and to walk away. So when it says here, their judgment will be swift, it might not happen right away. But what it's saying is when it does happen, and it will, it will be swift. And Jesus described it this way in Matthew 24. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So they were all living large. They were partying hardy. It was just life going on and going on. No clue of what was going to happen. And then the judgment came swiftly. And the day of the Lord and his judgment will be like that. It will happen swiftly. And it says in verse 2, Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. I think the saddest part about this verse 2 is the word many. It doesn't say a few will follow their shameful ways. It doesn't say some. It says many. You might just underline that. Many. They'll get lots of people thinking that that this is the norm. It's okay. You can do this and still be a Christian. It's not a problem. Everyone's doing that. Many will follow. We're going to see more specifics on that last time, uh, next time, actually, in two weeks. And I don't think it's going to be what you're expecting. This, this heresy, this false message that is being proclaimed. I think you'll be surprised as to what it is exactly and how prevalent it is in our world today when we get into around verses 13 and 14. So the teaching that Peter is referring to specifically is, is referred to as shameful and it brings disgrace upon the church. It says in verse 3, in their greed these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So we see a second key difference here between false prophets and true prophets or now false teachers and true teachers. The first was their source of information. The second is their motivation. Look at what it says. Your motivation is greed or as some translations put it, covetousness. They're in it for themselves. They're in it for the fame, the fortune, the fleshly pleasure. They're not. They don't care about the truth of God's word, about righteousness. They want what they can get out of it. And they use these same enticements to lure others to follow them. You can have this too. You don't have to look very far to find articles like these. Ten American pastors with private jets. It's what Jesus would do. Or here, even in poor countries in the world, impoverished countries, wealthy Nigerians, pastors spend $225 million on private jets. It brings the church disrepute when we see things like this. Now, I can't judge where these guys' hearts are, but it just doesn't pass the sniff test, does it? It doesn't seem right. And, and again, it brings disrepute on the way of truth. 
Tim Challies, he wrote an, a really helpful article where he identified seven different types of false teachers in the church today. And let me just give you a quick overview of those. Um, these will be on the, the PowerPoint online and you can look. The, the, the references assigned to these are my own. It's gonna be a little hard maybe to see that font. But the first one, he labeled the heretic. This person we just talked about teaches what is what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian church. He'll sometimes alter, add to the word of God. There's just enough truth to mask the deadly error. It seems believable, but it's, but it's in error. The second one, the charlatan. This is one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. The charlatan often exploits the vulnerable and the gullible to fill his own wallet. Today, many peddlers of the prosperity gospel enrich themselves from the gifts of their followers. That's the charlatan. Third, the prophet. This, this guy claims to be gifted by God to speak some fresh new revelation outside the Bible. But it's actually Satan who's commissioned and empowering him. Muhammad, Joseph Smith, those would be two people in, in later times that claim to have a new revelation from the Lord. Uh, fourth, the abuser. This person uses his position of leadership to take advantage of other people, usually to feed his sexual desire. Now, I used to think this, these kind of extreme cases were limited to really radical people like David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Remember that in Waco? But nowadays, it's common to hear about abuse by Catholic priests and even evangelical leaders. The abuser, false teachers. It's shameful, and it brings disgrace upon the church. The divider. This person uses false doctrine to disrupt or destroy the church. He or she brings strife rather than love and unity, undermining the leadership of the church and dividing the congregation. The divider. The tickler. The tickler is a man pleaser rather than a God pleaser. He craves popularity and praise from the world. He tells people what they want to hear, what their itching ears want to hear, and many follow. The speculators, the seventh one. The speculator is obsessed with novelty, originality, and speculation. He, he tosses aside the bulk of the Bible to focus on trivial or novel matters such as hidden codes and end time predictions. Places all the emphasis in that. That's a speculator. And we see references to all of these in scripture. I put some references up there for you. There's many more. The thing about these false teachers is that they look so much like the real thing. See, they're charismatic speakers and skillful leaders. They sound authoritative and they use biblical language. False teachers are masters of disguise. Jesus called this out. He, he issued this warning in Matthew 7, 15. He said, watch out for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And Paul wrote about this too in Acts 20. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Outwardly, they look just like the real thing. They sound so good. And we want to believe that these people are sincere. 
but they're not. They modify or they twist scripture just enough for their own, for their own evil purposes. And in the process, they destroy the flock. I heard about an art enthusiast who had a collection of paintings on the walls of his office, including one of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And every morning, he noticed it was crooked, and he would have to come in, and he would have to straighten it up. And day after day, he'd straighten it up, and he'd come in the next morning, and it was crooked again. And finally, he takes aside the, the, the janitor, and he says, are you moving this picture every night. I, I come back in the morning and it's crooked. And she says, why, yes, I have to hang it crooked to make the tower look straight. Well, that's what false teachers do. They twist the scripture and make it crooked so that their own slanted lives or opinions or desires look straight. False teachers. Satan's number one tactic is deception. It always has been. He's a liar and the father of lies. And so as a result, we have false prophets, false teachers, false gospels, fake Christians. And, and at the, in the end times, we're even going to have the presentation of a fake Christ. He always has been a deceiver. Deception is his, his MO. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 11 says. It says, it's talking about these false prophets. It says, for such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, excuse me, it is not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. They're masters of disguise. It sounds almost, it just sounds believable, but it's not. There's deadly error in it. What are the marks of a faithful Bible teacher? Well, it's not how good they look or how eloquent they sound or, or how funny they are or how emotionally stirred up you get when you hear them. The benchmark of any faithful Bible teacher must be, do they point you to the word of God? Do they point you to the word of God? Are they revealing what God says? Are, you helping, are they helping you to understand what it means? Are they applying it to your life? Or are they merely filling in with a whole bunch of eloquent words that make you feel good? Paul gave this charge to Timothy. He said, preach the word. Preach the word. Now, not preach from the word, Preach the word. And there's a big difference. See, preaching, pastors who preach from the word, take a verse or two, and then they launch off in 45 minutes of their own thing. But that's not preaching the word. That's preaching from the word. See, when you preach the word, the word of God itself, the message is centered on the word of God, and it's saturated with the word of God. We unpack what God says. I went online this week and I looked up a transcript from Joel Osteen. Now, <laughs> reserve judgment. <laughs> He's a pastor of America's largest church, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. 
And I just picked a sermon randomly because I wanted to see what I would find. It was a message from this year, and it was titled, When God Seems Too Late. It was centered loosely on one verse in Genesis chapter 18, where God told Abraham that this time next year he'd come back and his wife Sarah, 90 years old, would have a child. And Abraham was like 100 at the time. Now, Joel Osteen didn't read the verse. He just talked about it. And he made the point that sometimes God waits until it seems too late and humanly impossible, and then he fulfills his promises. It's a valid point. It's true. Good point. But then he says this. Maybe God has put promises in your heart that seem too late. And he gives some examples. Promises of healing of a wayward child turning around, of financial prosperity, of going from a loner to a lender, of having the compact center as your church building. That's where they meet now. They bought the 16,250-seat compact center, and that's their church building. And he says this. He says, quote, when thoughts tell you it's too late, It's never going to happen now. Let that go in one ear and out the other. God is faithful. What he promised you is still in root. I read on. He then mentions verse 12 and 13 of Genesis 18 where Sarah overheard God and she laughed. And he says, sometimes God puts promises in our heart that are so big, so unlikely, it's almost funny. All we can do is laugh. And he says, quote, It may seem too late, but that's how God planned it. It may look impossible. That's how God planned it. The medical report may not be good. You had a setback in your finances. The odds are against you. That doesn't stop God. You haven't missed your chance. The window hasn't closed. An unscheduled blessing is coming. An out-of-season promotion is already en route. Healing breakthrough, the right people, they're already on your calendar. It's going to happen at the time that God has planned. End of quote. Then he told the story of someone he called his friend, Victoria Arlen. You might know her story. She became ill as a teenager and was in a coma for four years. And pretty much everybody had given up on her, but her parents didn't, and she came out of the coma. But when she did, she was paralyzed from the waist down. She went on to win medals, even a gold medal in the Paralympics, but she was determined to walk again. And in time, she regained her ability to walk, and not only walk, but run. In fact, Victoria Arlen was on Dancing with the Stars, and she competed there. He says, um, He says, now, this is a quote, now you may be in a dry season yourself. Things are not changing. God sees your faithfulness. He hasn't forgotten about you. He's going to make up for what hasn't happened. I believe and declare boatloads of blessing are coming your way. Prepared blessings, favor, healing, the right people. Like with Sarah, who would have, like with Sarah, who would have thought blessings. Dream bigger than you've you've imagined. Problems that look impossible suddenly turning around. The fullness of your destiny in Jesus' name. He spoke this over the people. Now, a person might think, that sounds great. That's right from scripture. This is just what I needed. It really revived my soul this morning. I'm all in. 
Where do, I, where do I send my check? This is good stuff. And it is rooted in scripture. But what's wrong with all of this? Did you pick up on it? Where has God ever said that he puts his promises on your heart? See, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's deceitful beyond all things. Who can know it? God's promises are not in your heart. They're in his word. But Osteen leads them to believe over and over again. He says, God has put promises in your heart, promises of healing and prosperity. Now, make no mistake, God has given you his very great and precious promises. We read that. That's a verse, 2 Peter 1.4. He has given us his very great and precious promises, but they're not in your heart. They're in his word. If you go teaching people that all the dreams and desires that they have in their heart are actually God's promises, then what happens when that sick person dies? We prayed last Sunday for Dave's friend. She died Monday morning. What happens when you work your whole life and you retire with just enough to get by? You never become wealthy. What happens when your ministry doesn't fill a stadium? What does that say about God? It says that God is not faithful and he doesn't keep his promises. What a sick thing to teach people. And it's just a little, it just twisted a little. God has put his promises in your heart. There's a lot of evil in my heart. There's a lot of fleshly desires in my heart. I can't claim those as the promises of God. So again, it's just twisting. There's there's a reason why we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, explaining, unpacking, applying the truth of God's word. There's a reason why I'm pointing you to 25 or 30 passages of scripture to help make this nine verses in First, Second Peter clear. It's because we want you to hear and understand God's word, not mine. All I'm trying to do is help you see and understand God's word. I'm not judging Joel Osteen's salvation. God only knows where his heart is. But I am pointing to errors in his teaching. That was just the first one I picked up and read. And the errors were pretty obvious to me. But a lot of people, many, will fall for it. There are 10 million people watching his live stream every week. And he's misleading them with this, uh, with this distorted version of the truth. Meanwhile, he sold over 100 million copies of one of his books. He lives in a $10.5 million mansion. And he flies around in an Airbus A319 valued at $86 million. That kind of thing, I just think, brings disrepute on the church. It doesn't seem right. James 3.1 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that he who teaches will be judged more strictly. How's that for a promise of God? Teachers, I'm going to be judged more strictly. Well, enough about fakes. <laughs> Let's look at the fates. Secondly, verses four through nine. We'll read through it. 
Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Now, verses four through six begin with the word if. If God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. A better translation would be since. They're actually synonyms, but since communicates there is no historical uncertainty about these events. You could just write in your Bible, since, and that would be a little more more informing. So verses 4 through 6 list three powerful examples of God's judgment of evil in the past. Example number one, the angels who sinned. According to Jude 6, they cohabitated with human women, presumably in Genesis 6 before the flood. And the sin was so egregious that God didn't wait till the day of judgment. He locked them up eternally in chains, waiting for the day of judgment. Not all demons are locked up, but these ones are because what they did was so evil. Example number two, the ancient world, when he brought the flood. Listen to Genesis chapter six, verse five. It says, the Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You get that? Every inclination, only evil all the time. Every, only, all. That's, that's pretty complete. And he judged them. And all mankind perished suddenly, swiftly, except for Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven of his family members. Example number three, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns on the plain. God destroyed them completely. Jude 7 says their sin was sexual immorality and perversion. And Genesis 19 tells us it included homosexuality. God judged those cities by burning them to ashes. Now, we're going to talk more about this sin next week, two weeks from now, and why that is such a big deal, that God would judge them so harshly. But we're given three powerful examples of God's judgment of evil in the past. Lest anyone should think that God will tolerate the ways of ungodly people forever. Some people think that God won't judge everybody in the end because he's just too loving. In the end, everyone will just be saved. That's a heresy called universalism. Make no mistake, God is loving. In fact, he's not just loving. God is love, the very embodiment of love. But God's also just, and his justice requires judgment. And verse 6 says that Sodom and Gomorrah were an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly in the future. 
there will be judgment. You probably heard the saying that if God doesn't judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Even, even Jay Leno said, if God doesn't judge Hollywood Boulevard, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. See, America is quickly rising to the level, if not there already or beyond, of Sodom and Gomorrah. They paraded around their sin, it says. They paraded around proud and arrogant of it. But again, we'll come back to that next time. But as you read this text, you see God's judgment of evil. But don't overlook his rescue. Look what verse 5 says. He protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And verse 7 says, he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of the lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He protected Noah. He rescued Lot. When you watch the news, when you see what's going on in the world, do you feel like tormented in your soul? God, this is so ugly. When will this ever end? When are you going to step in and put an end to all this evil? Do you ever feel that way? Be assured it will come to an end, and it will come to an end swiftly. Someone asked me one time, well, why, doesn't, why does God tolerate that? If God is all loving and all powerful, why didn't he put an end to evil right now? You know what? Because for the sake of those who will come to him, he's willing to endure it. Evil hurts God worse than it hurts you. When, when a man goes charging through a parade route and kills children and women and, and innocent bystanders, I mean, that crushes some people, but it crushes the heart of God even worse. Why does he do it? Because that's how much he values those who will be saved. Take all the, let's say that there's, oh no, globally, say 20,000 people saved a day. Divide that by the number of seconds in a day. I didn't do the math on this, but you can. Let's just say that every minute somewhere in the world, somebody is saved. Think of all the evil that goes on in the world in one minute. God tolerates that evil for the sake of that person who's going to be saved. That's how much he loves the lost. I'm going to put up with this. But there will be a day where he says, enough, enough is enough. The shoe's going to drop. Judgment will come. Well, all of these verses lead up to the concluding statement in verse 9. It says, if or since this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from the trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Judgment and rescue. God judges the ungodly. They will be destroyed completely, but God rescues the righteous. Now we should note that whenever there is a judgment directly from God, he always removes the righteous before judging the ungodly. We see that pattern in scripture again and again. And this too, I believe, is a pattern of what we're gonna see in the end times. It's one of the reasons why I support a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. God will remove his church before he brings judgment upon the ungodly in the world. It's, it's a pattern that we see. 
And, and I find comfort in that, personally, as I see where things are going. So God rescued Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and he rescued Lot, who he describes as a righteous man. But don't miss this point. Righteous does not mean self-righteous. This righteousness did not come from them. No man can be righteous or good enough to make himself acceptable to God. In fact, Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Get that? There is no one righteous, not even one. Well, then how can they call Lot a righteous man? How can, how can Noah be saved because of his righteousness and he preaching righteousness when there is no one righteous, not even one? Because there's a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that comes through faith in our righteous God. All the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and his faith was credited to him as what? Righteousness. He believed and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Credited, transferred to him, transferred into his account, righteousness. Romans 3 in the New Testament says, in verses 21 and 22, but now, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Did you catch that? Righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. From God, through faith, to all who believe. God knows you are not righteous and I'm not righteous. And you can never meet his standard of righteousness. What is his standard? Perfection. He's holy. If you want to be in the presence of a holy God on your own, you would have to be perfectly holy. Again, I use the example, you know, if you've got a camper or an RV, you got your drinking water and you got your gray water and you got your sewer water. You and I aren't even gray water. We're sewer water. You can't put it together with the drinking water. The drinking water is no longer drinkable. God cannot stand in the presence of evil. It requires that separation. He knows we can't be righteous. But he came and he lived the righteous life that you and I cannot live. And in an act of unconscionable love, he took our penalty upon himself on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you and me to God. And he's willing to trade your sin, my sin, for his righteousness. I've had some good deals before in my life. I mean, like really good deals. Really? It's only that much? Sure, I'll buy it. But imagine that. What a deal. Righteousness for sin. That's not just my words. <laughs> it's not just my words. I don't want you to hear my words. I want you to hear 2 Corinthians 5.21, God's word. God made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How beautiful is that? 
through faith in him, we receive God's righteousness. What does it cost us? Nothing. It's a free gift. But we have to give up our sin. We have to give it over to him. We have to receive this free gift of righteousness. Do you have that righteousness? Or is condemnation still hanging over your head, as the passage said? You can have that righteousness today. You can be rescued from certain destruction, certain and sudden destruction, if you'll make him your sovereign Lord. Your sovereign Lord. Don't deny the sovereign Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we deserve nothing but your judgment. Our sin is an offense to you because you're a holy God, and yet you offer us your mercy and your grace. And I'm so thankful for this season that we're celebrating where you came down as man, got down in our ugly little casket of death, our world of sin and death, and you came and you lived that righteous life that we could not. And you took the punishment we deserve upon yourself. The only righteous man ever put to death by unrighteous man. And you died. And you rose again. And you did it so that you could rescue us. God, what a, what a gospel. What good news. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are still under your condemnation who've not been rescued from their sin. God, I pray that that would happen right now. I pray that they would, in the privacy of their own heart, just pray these words between them and you. Tune the rest of us out, that they would cry out, Lord, forgive me. I know for sure that I'm a sinner. I am not holy like you. But thank you that you came in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the price for my sin on the cross. I believe that you came. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again for me. I place my faith in you. Give me your righteousness. Fill me with your spirit and give me new life and purpose. God, help me to live for you as my sovereign Lord today and every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship our righteous God.